Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Well, I hope you stick around to the end of this episode today because what is your biggest expense? Your biggest expense is taxes. The less tax you pay, the more money you put in your pocket and the more you have to work with in terms of spending money and investable capital. So this is something I'm always interested in. I am trying to learn as much as I can about it whenever I can, and it is a really deep and broad subject, but we don't have to overcomplicate it because there are professionals out there that you can work with, ask questions of, and help you to structure your investing and your business affairs so you can lower your taxable obligations, the tax impact. And there are many, many, many ways to do that. The tax code is actually chock full of incentives, of ways to lower the taxable income that you generate and the tax impact that you have. And that could be so many ways. That could be through depreciation. It could be through passive losses, active losses. It could be through cost segregation. It can be through expensable, if that's a real word, items, basically expenses to reduce your taxable income. So there are so many ways. And one of the guys who I know who's very sharp, and I'm actually doing some work with his firm personally, is a guy that I met many years ago. A young guy, very sharp. Uh, his name is Brandon Hall. And I invited him on the show again. He's a returning guest. And I thought I would talk to him today about the passive activity rules, as well as some bonus depreciation and maybe some other questions if I can squeeze it in. So that is what you are in store for. I think this is well worth listening to right through to the end and possibly a second or third time because it is just going to be chock full of good information that you could use. And so with that, let us get to our interview today. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Brandon Hall back to the show. He's a returning guest. Brandon is the managing partner of Hall CPA, an accounting and tax services firm for real estate investors and entrepreneurs. Brandon was named 40 under 40 by CPA practice advisor in 2018. He leverages his personal real estate investing and his big four accounting experience to offer unique insights to his clients. And I am actually one of them. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark, for having me on. I really appreciate being back here. Right on. Well, it's good to have you back. I love what you and your partners do at the firm. It's always fun talking to you guys. And uh, I love your level of expertise. And you don't look like a very... Uh, elderly person your whole team is like so young it just blows me away yeah yeah well yeah in accounting so our, our larger mission that we don't really talk about much on the real estate side of the of things with all of our content is uh we are actually trying to change the accounting industry so there is just uh it's an old tired broken model and i think there's a lot of young firm owners like myself that are out there that we're kind of all banding together to try to figure out if we can actually do some damage on changing the industry, how it operates and, you know, who's the face of the industry. So yeah, yeah, yeah we are uh, a bunch of young, young folks. <laughs> I like it. It's fresh. It's refreshing. And you put out great content. You have good articles. I like your podcast. I mean, everything you're doing is great. So keep up the good work. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. The content's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. My, my larger mission is to help as many lands landlords as I possibly can. And, uh, you know, because I mean, we're, our, our firm is relatively expensive to, to work with, but um, but I didn't want that to stop me from trying to help all the landlords out there. Yeah. So that's what all the content is for. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, we'll touch on that a little more later. So, you know, taxes is something that is either boring for a lot of people or taxes is something that people don't want to talk about. They stick their head in the sand because they just don't like the idea of paying taxes. But the thing is, is one of the, at least I feel, one of the best ways to actually put more money in your pocket is to figure out how you can minimize the tax impact because it's the fastest way to put more money in your pocket. And so for that reason, I actually do like talking about taxes and I do like learning about taxes and I do like teaching people about how they can save on taxes, which is what you know you do and why I have you on the show. So let's talk about some stuff that most people don't typically talk about. And let's start with the passive activity rules or loss rules. Uh, let's begin with you know what they are. So investors and people listening to this podcast understand what we're talking about. And then we can talk about how do they apply to real estate investors. Before we do, I just want to comment on that, on what you were just saying about liking taxes and stuff. You know, th there are 
I think, I think a lot of real estate investors start trying to learn about taxes because they realize that there's tax benefits, but you're, you're totally right. Like if you don't, if you don't like taxes, you, you have to learn how to like taxes because <laughs> taxes are your number one expense. Like if you pull your tax turn up, they are, you are paying that you, your largest expense is to the federal government. And so you should educate yourself at some basic level to understand how taxes work and, and really to have more sophisticated conversations with your own CPA. Like that's what we try to help people do that are not necessarily our clients. It's, it's a, look, we just want to help get you to some basic level of understanding so that you can ask better questions, right? You don't have to know the code. You don't have to know the tax court cases, but you got to know the questions to ask to make sure that it's being done right and to make sure that you're not missing anything um, and no, the professionals are not going to cover all of that for you. You can't outsource this type of stuff. It's it's too important. It's too important. And it's too big of an expense. Um, so anyway, let's let's jump into the passive activity loss rules. So the passive activity loss rules were implemented in 1986, and they were implemented to stop wealthy people from using rental real estate as a tax shelter. Uh, real estate professional status was then later added, I believe, in 1993 as a means to allow people who are in real estate full-time to use their rental losses to offset their other real estate business income. And the reason that I say that is we're going to talk about real estate professional status through explaining what the passive activity loss rules are. And you may have heard of real estate professional status or through this conversation, you'll learn about it. And you may think it's a loophole. And I want to make real clear, it's not a loophole. The passive activity loss rules were enacted to stop the loophole which was, I earn a million dollars W-2, I buy three rental properties, I bonus depreciate them, and I wipe my income out. That was the loophole. Investing in rental real estate was the loophole. So these passive activity loss rules were added in 1986 to stop that from happening. So real estate professional status, not a loophole. And it's really important to understand congressional intent because then you'll understand how the IRS attacks it, how the tax court analyzes it. But the passive activity loss rules created two buckets of income. They created the passive income bucket and the non-passive income bucket. In my passive bucket is any rental real estate, unless I qualify as a real estate professional, and any trader business that I do not materially participate in. So for the latter, the trader business that I don't materially participate in, let's say that I put $100,000 into my local hair salon, and they use that $100,000 as an expansion. They then allocate $10,000 of profit to me every single year. That $10,000 of profit is passive income to me, assuming that I'm not materially participating in the business. And I'm not going to materially participate. I'm not going to go cut hair. I'm not going to make business decisions. I'm just putting $100,000 down for their expansion. And they're going to give me $10,000 a year back. So that 10K is passive income. It's a trader business that I'm not materially participating in. So that goes into my passive bucket. All my rental real estate goes into my passive bucket. The other thing that these passive activity loss rules created was the non-passive bucket. In the non-passive bucket is my W-2 income. It's my business income where I do materially participate. So for me, that's my CPA firm income. Uh, it's any capital gain from stock sale, interest, dividends. Those don't sound non-passive, but with, within the, 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 these rules, they are. So interest, dividends, gain from selling Apple stock, gain from selling crypto, all considered non-passive. So really the only thing in my passive bucket is my rentals and any business that I don't materially participate in. Everything else is going to be non-passive. And that is an important distinction to understand because my rental real estate generally produces losses. So I'll buy a rental, I'll, I'll cost segregate it, I'll depreciate it, I'll end up with a tax loss, even if I have positive operating income, thanks to that depreciation expense that I can accelerate, I'll end up with a tax loss. And that tax loss is passive. Passive losses can only offset passive income or gain on sale from passive activities. So I could use my rental losses to offset my hair salon $10,000 of income because it's all passive, right? It's all in the same bucket. I can do that. I can use a limited partnership loss. If I go and put 100K into a limited partnership and it generates $70,000 of losses for me, I can use that to offset my hair salon income. So I can use passive losses to offset passive income. I can also use passive losses to offset the gain on sale of rental property or the gain on sale of selling my hair salon stake because it's all passive. So I can use rental losses to offset all of that. What I can't do is I can't use my rental losses to offset my W-2 income, 
my CPA firm income, my crypto gain income, my stock gain income, my interest, my dividends. I can't use my rental losses to offset that income unless I can jump my rental losses out of the passive bucket and into the non-passive bucket. And I could do that in a number of ways, but one of those ways is to qualify as a real estate professional. So if I can jump those losses into the non-passive bucket, now it's extremely powerful because I could net a million dollars at my CPA firm, here's to Hopin, and I could then go and buy a $5 million multifamily building that generates a million dollar tax loss. And that million dollar tax loss could offset my million dollars of CPA firm income, assuming that I was able to claim that million dollar tax loss from my rentals as non-passive. So I've got to be able to move into that non-passive bucket, but it's very lucrative if you can. I mean, the tax savings of that example is probably you know, three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so very lucrative if you can figure it out. So before we get into the real estate professional status and what that means and how you qualify, because I know there's different qualification criteria there, why do you not differentiate active income to the non-passive income that you're talking about? What do you mean? Does that make sense? You've got passive income and non-passive income. And why do you not call that non-passive income active income? Good question. So you could call it active income, but for the purposes of section 469, which is the passive activity loss rules, they say that there's passive and non-passive. Now, generally speaking, my active income is going to be my non-passive income. Like if you, if you use the, the term active income, we're typically talking about non-passive, but there could be points where it's active income but it's actually passive income, you know? Like, like maybe maybe I invest in that hair salon and you have a CPA that calls that active income because it's it's income from a trade or business that's, uh, that's like an ordinary activity, right? It's not rental in the passive traditional sense. So you might have somebody call this hair salon investment as they might call it active income, but the reality is, is that if I don't materially participate, it's considered passive. So for the purposes of these rules, I like to use the terms passive and non-passive because that's what these rules do is they divide your income up between passive, non-passive. Active is not part of the conversation. So we're, we're talking about IRS nomenclature. This exactly. Is just, okay. Yes. Even yes. though for the sake of the layman person in conversation, your W-2 income is active income, which is also non-passive income. Exactly. Exactly. And, and for the purposes of like leveling up everybody's tax sophistication, words and definitions are extremely, extremely important when we're reading the tax code. So what I always encourage people to do is to learn the actual terms and try to use those actual terms whenever you're talking with your own CPA or with your own tax advisor, because that will clue them in to what sections they should be looking at, researching further for you and how to have better conversations with you. Um, So try to use the and I, a lot of people default to active. I know to switch that to non-passive in my head. Okay. But if you work with somebody that doesn't have a ton of real estate investors, they may not make that switch and it could impact you some way, shape or form. I, I'm not really sure how that, that would specifically, but um, yeah, so I always try to use passive, non-passive. So everybody listening to this is now thinking, oh, this is great. Uh, how do I get there? What are the ways? Obviously the real estate professional status is one way probably the low hanging fruit for most people listening to this. So let's start with that. And then if you wanna add other ways to get there after that, let's do that. But this is kind of like the holy grail (laughs) in many ways is like, how do I get to this real estate professional status? Because, oh my gosh, can I sure save on taxes? Yeah, so to start off, let's explain the benefits. So being a real estate professional allows you to claim your rental activities as non-passive, which allows you to claim the rental losses against your W-2 income, against your business income, and really to an unlimited effect. So you would be able to eliminate, if you acquired enough property, your income, which would save you tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes during that year. A lot of people do it. It is very possible, but it is highly scrutinized. It's highly litigated. And so if you are going to be a real estate professional, you have to take it very seriously. We have run into groups online that do a disservice to their members because they don't teach them the ins and outs of how to actually get this done. Instead, they just teach them high level. They'll they'll go over the the benefits. Then everybody in the group's going, oh, cool. We're all real estate professionals. I'm going to make my CPA make this election. 
And then those are the people that are calling us up two, three, four years later to help with an audit. And they always lose. They always lose. I, the, the audits that I've been a part of where I've been called into them, it's almost like a, it's like a 95% loss rate because they're just not doing it correct. So, so to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours in real property trades or businesses in which you materially participate. You must also spend more time in those real property trades or businesses than you do anywhere else. So the second piece of that, more time than anywhere else, is going to eliminate anybody with a full-time job. So if you work 2,000 hours, you would have to be able to substantiate that to the IRS and the tax court that you worked an additional 2,001 hours in real estate. And though you could physically potentially do it, the IRS and the tax court will not buy it. There's not been one tax court case where somebody has worked full-time and been able to substantiate the fact that they are a real estate professional. Unless, of course, they're working full-time in a real property trader business. That's different, right? So if you're working full-time, not in a real property trader business, uh, then you're not going to be able to be a real, a real estate professional. But if that's not you, or if you have a spouse that's staying at home or a spouse that's working a part-time job, your spouse could qualify as a real estate professional. So again, to qualify as a real estate professional, 750 hours in real property trades or businesses in which you materially participate and more time in those real property trades or businesses than you spend anywhere else. There are 11 real property trades or businesses. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but some of them are brokerage, operations, uh, leasing, property management, construction, reconstruction, development, and then there's a handful of others. So it's like really kind of th think of it as like being a landlord that can uh, rental is one of them. So being a landlord is a real property trader business. So I I'm like really involved in real estate in some capacity. That's the time that you're going to be able to, to count. If you qualify as a real estate professional, you also have to materially participate in your rental activities in order to make them non-passive. So it's really important to understand that simply qualifying as a real estate professional does not make your rentals non-passive. Your rentals are still going to be passive unless you materially participate in your rental activities. And where this hangs people up is, let's say that I'm a, I'm a real estate agent and I'm a real estate agent for 2000 hours. It's my full-time job. It's the only thing that I do. I'm a real estate professional because I spent 750 hours in a brokerage real property trader business. And I spent more time in that brokerage real property trader business than I did anywhere else. So I'm a real estate professional. But if I don't go and materially participate in my rentals, my rentals are still passive. So sometimes we have people that actually qualify as a real estate professional, but their rentals are still passive because they nor their spouse went and materially participated in their rental real estate activities. So big mistake. So you always got to come back to the rentals and make sure that you do materially participate. There are seven tests for material participation. The three that we see most often from easiest to hardest are one, your participation is substantially all of the participation. So that means that if you spent 50 hours working on the rental, nobody else did anything. You didn't have any other contractors. You did everything by hand. Property management, everything was you. So of the 50 hours of participation, 100% was yours. You have materially participated because substantially all the participation is your participation. Test number two, the second level, 100 hours and more than anyone else. So maybe I have a contractor that spent 100 hours. I spend 100 hours. I spend 101 hours. I spent 100 hours and more than my contractors. So that's the second test. The third test is to spend 500 hours across my rentals in order. And that's just kind of like more of a safe harbor. So if I could spend 500 hours across my rentals, I'm good to go. And this also assumes that I make a grouping election because material participation is looked at on a rental by rental activity, unless I make the grouping election. So assuming that I qualify as a real estate professional and I materially participate in the activity, then I will have a non-passive rental activity. So I've always got to come back and hit those material participation tests. I think that's where a lot of people lose out on the real estate professional status is they qualify in terms of the hours per year, but they choose, and, and this is true for a lot of our clients, because this is what I'm thinking of as you're talking about this. A lot of our clients want to be minimally involved. They want rentals that are professionally managed by full service management companies and, and be able to free up their time to do other things. It sounds like that's where people lose out on this real estate professional status. So first of all, is that true? And second, how can a person who likes turnkey rentals and likes professional management, managing their portfolio, get into that 
real estate professional status qualification? Yeah, great question. So the first part, yes, it's definitely true. If, if, if you are outsourcing property management, there is an extremely low chance that you would be able to substantiate to the IRS and tax court that you are materially participating in those activities because you're not the one that's the real estate professional, right? Marco's the real estate professional. He's the one that's running everything. Uh, and your team is running everything. So your team could be real estate professionals, assuming that they own, I think it's at least 5% of your company if they're W-2 employees. So, um, and we, we can just skip over that. We don't need to go into that any further. But the point is, is that if you outsource the management, you're not going to be able to use the hours associated with that rental as material participation or real estate professional status type hours. Those will be considered investor level hours because you're not involved in the day-to-day management. So to answer your second question, well, how could I be a turnkey investor and still benefit from all of this? There are two ways. One, the first is to give the real estate professional status game up and to simply go uh, with the Warren Buffett approach to investing, which is over time, I'm going to build ca- uh, tax advantageous income streams. And you know, today it's not going to make a big difference, but 10 years from now, when I'm cash flowing $20,000 a month, and my depreciation expense is $18,000 a month, I'm going to end up with $240,000 of cash flow, but I'm going to get to tell the IRS that I only earned $20,000 or $24,000, right? So my effective tax rate on that might be $4,000 on $240,000 of income. My effective tax rate is extremely low because all I've done is I've just bought uh, great income producing assets that are also highly tax advantageous. That's the way that I would encourage anybody listening to go long-term, regardless of what you do short-term. Long-term, it's got to be a focus on acquiring real estate, acquiring cash flow streams that I don't pay tax on, uh, either the full income stream or, or I even get a tax loss as a result of this income stream, even though I've actually earned money. So that's option number one. Option number two, you could build out a portfolio that is local to you. And you could self-manage that portfolio. Like, like if, if turnkey was a really big part of my investment strategy and I called you up, Marco, and I was like, all right, I've got 500K to deploy. We're going to buy however many homes, 20 homes, probably not today, maybe, I don't know, what, 15 homes, uh, whatever, whatever the going rate is. We're going to buy a bunch of homes. And, and we start acquiring, start acquiring. I can't use any of the hours that I spend with you for material participation or real estate professional status, but I could acquire two or three homes local to me, local being, you know, 15, 30 minute drive. It's gotta be something that, that I can visit frequently. I could rehab those homes. I could self-manage those homes and I could probably justify uh, potentially that I spent 750 hours managing those homes. And if I spend 750 hours managing those homes, guess what? I'm also gonna hit that 500 hour material participation test. So I'm also materially participating in my own properties, right? My own two to three properties, maybe four, maybe five. There's no bright line test. You could do it with one. There are tax court cases where people have one with one property. They've won real estate professional status with only one property. It's not about the number of properties. It's about the time that it takes you to manage the properties. So I could, let's say I buy three properties local and I self-manage them and I do hit 750 hours. So I qualify as a real estate professional on my own three properties. I materially participate in my own three properties and you're managing 15 properties for me. Well, what I do is I make something called the nine election. This is found in treasury regulation section 1.469-9G. So I make this election and what it does is it groups in all of those rentals that you're managing into my three rentals that I'm managing. And basically it says, I am materially participating on the entire portfolio. So now all 15 that you're managing are now non-passive as well. So I could, if I really wanted to get around it, that's how I would get around it. I would buy local, rehab, self-manage, and then I would make this nine election to group all those others in. And I don't have to do this every single year, right? Maybe it's just this year that I need a big spike in depreciation. So this year I'm going to self-manage everything and I'm going to tough it out on my local three rentals. I'm going to make that nine election. Then next year, I'm going to hand it to a property manager, my local rentals. I'll hand it to a property manager because I don't really want to manage the day-to-day. So you don't have to you know, stick with it forever, but that's how I would get around it. So that's interesting. Let me take your example and stretch it a little further. Sure. What if you don't want local properties? Like 
me as an example here, I'm in Orange County, California. There's nothing I want locally. It's just too expensive. Can you make that same example or achieve the same result by having material participation in properties that are elsewhere, but not necessarily your entire portfolio? So somebody listening to this, maybe they have 10 properties. They're going to materially participate in one or two of those, but they're not in your backyard, as they say. Yeah. So you can, yes, uh, you can certainly materially participate at a distance. It just depends on your activity. So you would need to manage all communications with the tenants, basically the entire setup of rent collection and payment. You would need to be the one that calls on the contractors to get them out to the property. If you've got any sort of rehab up front, we would want to see you actually go to the property and spend time down there, either doing the rehab or monitoring the rehab and doing the quality inspections. So you got to be like, you got to be involved. You probably not be able to materially participate again if you have property management. So that's automatically out. But if you are self-managing at a distance, yes, you can. If you structure it right, you probably have to manage more at a distance than you would locally, just because you're going to be subbing out all that contract labor, but you can do it. You, you can do it. We have some clients that do it. It is definitely something that like if, if you were working with us and you were trying to justify that, it would be something that we would scrutinize and we would just make you do a little more of your own substantiation in terms of the hour logs that you're, that you should be keeping and what notes we want to put down and stuff like that, because the IRS will scrutinize the heck out of it if you're audited. Um, but it can be done. I think you just started to answer my next question. And that is how do you prove that you're spending time self-managing or being materially involved in your business or your rentals? Yep. Great question. You do have to have a time log. Uh, the time log can be whatever, whatever suits you. You could, it could be handwritten. It could be on Google calendar. Uh, a lot of our clients use Google sheets just because you can put, you know, a spreadsheet anywhere on your phone, but it has to detail the date, the amount of time the property was for. And then you want notes. You, you want notes that are good notes, not like I sent and received emails or I did emails. That's not a good note. Uh, and the reason it's not a good note is because these audits are not going to happen for multiple years. I mean, think three years into the future. Now they come and audit you and they start asking about your time log they're going to scrutinize that and you need to you need to be able to very easily and quickly remind yourself of what you did so that you can give the context and tell the story otherwise the auditor is going to ask you more and more and more questions and that's how people will lose these real estate uh, professional audits that I've been a part of is they just they're making the time logs up they're making them up retroactively they really have no idea what they did on these days because they don't have any notes so if you take really good notes uh, you will th that's that's the biggest piece of, of substantiation so I emailed with Brandon and his team about X takes two more seconds to write, or maybe five more seconds to write, but now you've protected yourself in the, in the future. Okay. So maybe my last question about real estate professional status, and that is, is it retroactive? In other words, if somebody makes that election now in March of 2022, will that apply going forward or can that apply to last year? So the real estate professional status is actually not an election. It's really just a reporting mechanism every time that we file tax returns and it is on an annual basis. So, you know, we could be deciding if we want to be a real estate professional, October 15th, 2022, for your 2021 tax returns, because that's the filing deadline, right? So we have up until then to really say yes or no. But if you want to qualify as a real estate professional, you should make that decision proactively and you should start recording time now. Here's my last question about it. There are a lot of websites, and I'm not going to mention any of them here. There are a lot of tools online that allow real estate investors to self-manage their properties, which means they don't have a property manager, but they have tools where they can communicate with tenants, collect payment, and dispatch people as needed if there's a service request or whatever it may be. If you manage your properties through these tools, these portals, would that still qualify you as a real estate professional? Yes, because you would effectively be the property manager at that point. But okay. you just, you have to be realistic with the time that you log because the IRS and any sort of tax court judge that might be looking at your situation, they're going to apply their own experiences to life. And these guys own rental real estate too. Like they're, it's not like they're, they're total noobs at this stuff. And so a good way to put it is like, you know, I have a beach home and I've got it on Airbnb and VRBO and I use hospitable to, uh, to self-manage it. And I do self-manage it. 
But like after the initial fix up, I changed out all the fixtures. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty handy guy, even though I'm a tax guy. Um, but <laughs> I changed out all the fixtures, uh, did, did some of this uh, upfront work. I mean, after that, it's pretty chill. And this is even people coming on a weekly basis because my communications are answering maybe, you know, four questions from somebody during the week. And then, uh, and then just communicating with my cleaning crew, my linen crew at turnover, and it's not a significant lift. So that's why I say like, if you're, if you are self-managing, especially at a distance and you're using these tools, yes, your time, like in these tools, managing them, dispatching people to your property. Yes. That time can count, but you probably need a lot more property at that point than something that I'm managing locally, a little bit more rudimentary, not as tech forward, uh, not as modern. Interesting. Uh, so you mentioned short-term rentals. How do the passive activity rules apply to short-term rentals? Is it just the same or is it any different? It's a great, great question. So if your average period of customer use is seven days or less, which is most short-term rentals, uh, then you actually do not have a rental activity under section 469 of the Internal Revenue Code. And section 469 is the passive activity loss rules that we just went over. And they say all rental activities are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional and any trade or business that you don't materially participate in is passive. So if a short-term rental is not a quote rental activity, this is why I said definitions are important. If you don't have a rental activity, then you don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional because only real estate professionals, only rental activities are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional, right? So if I don't have a rental activity, I don't have to worry about real estate professional status. All I have to worry about is material participation. So what this means is I can have a full-time job, a full-time W-2 job. I could, I could be running this CPA firm full-time and I could buy rental, uh, I could buy short-term rentals and I could make those non-passive through material participation. And I could use those losses to offset my W-2 income or my CPA firm income without having to qualify as a real estate professional. Because remember, real estate professional status is the hangup for real estate investors. It says 750 hours, but it also says more time in real estate than anywhere else. So it's that more time in real estate than anywhere else that hangs everybody up. So if I don't have to qualify as a real estate professional, I don't have to worry about that more time than in real estate than anywhere else. All I have to worry about is material participation. So I could self-manage a short-term rental. And if I do all the work myself, you know, I could book 50 hours. And if it's 50 hours divided by a total of 50 hours by all participants, then my participation is substantially all the participation. In theory, I have materially participated, even though I spent 50 hours on the activity. Now, don't go run away from this podcast thinking you can only spend 50 hours. There's no bright line test. We don't actually know how many hours that substantially all test actually requires. So talk with your CPA first, but we definitely know that if I spend 110 hours managing my short-term rental and my cleaners spend 103 hours cleaning it, we definitely know that I have spent 100 hours and more than my cleaners. So I am materially participating in that instance. And since I'm materially participating, my short-term rental activity is now non-passive. You know, I could buy a million dollar beach home. I could cost segregate it create a $250,000 tax loss in the current year, offset that with my CPA firm income, yield 112K in tax savings. You can do it with short-term rentals. A lot more flexibility, a lot more flexibility. So Brandon, I don't know if you answered this, but for someone who has a small portfolio, you know, anywhere three, five, 10 houses, one of those properties being a short-term rental and they choose to self-manage the short-term rental only and have property management on the rest, can they meet the thresholds managing that short-term rental to qualify as a real estate professional? Great question. The tax court will tell you no. So the tax court thinks that short-term rentals are completely separate. They're on their own island, sometimes literally. And long-term <laughs> rentals are in a different you know, bucket. So the tax court says hours spent on short-term rentals will not count towards real estate professional status and will not count towards material participation on your long-term rentals. So that whole grouping thing that I was talking about earlier, you can't right. group short-term rentals with long-term rentals. That's too bad. It is too bad. Yeah. <laughs> that sounded I, like an easy, easy I out. think I think that somebody is going to successfully argue at some point that that's not the way that it should actually work. But 
that's what we currently have in the tax court. Well, that's, that's a bummer because that sounded like an easy way to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Darn it. Okay. Before we leave the topic of uh, real estate professional and passive activity rules, is there anything else you want to mention about it? Because I think we covered a lot, but I'm not sure if we missed anything that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple things for material participation purposes, you and your spouse can combine your time. So my spouse and I, like I could spend 25 hours, she could spend 25 hours combined. We have 50 hours. Our participation is substantially all the participation. We are materially participating. But for the purposes of the real estate professional status tests, one spouse has to meet those two tests, 750 hours, more time than anywhere else, uh, completely on their own. So real estate professional status and material participation is a little bit different in terms of who uh, or how you can combine time with spouses. But if one spouse is a real estate professional, the way that I like to think about it is your tax return is now a real estate professional status tax return. So both spouses get to benefit from the real estate professional status election. And the last thing that I'll say is I probably engage in a conversation once a month about how losses from one passive activity cannot offset income from another passive activity or gain on sale from a passive activity. And I just want to give everybody a little tip. Uh, if your CPA or tax advisor tells you that you cannot use your syndication losses to offset your rental income, or that you cannot use your rental losses to from one rental to offset your rental income from another rental, or you cannot use your rental losses to offset the gain on sale from a rental activity, uh, ask them to prepare form 8582 or ask them to prepare a pro forma form 8582, which is just a projection. And they will very quickly realize that they are incorrect. And they can get to that conclusion without looking anything up in the code. If they look it up in the code, they will confirm that they are incorrect. But that is what I tell people to ask their CPAs to do, because um, a lot of times, the CPAs simply just don't understand section 469. It's very complex to learn. Once you learn it, it makes total sense, but it's very complex to learn initially and truly understand. So I just, I just encourage people to, to, to ask your CPAs, prepare form 8582, and then they will realize all passive losses can offset all passive income and all gain on sale from passive activities. Interesting. So for the benefit of those listening to this that don't qualify for the real estate professional status, you mentioned uh, a little while ago that the alternative route to saving taxes is just to build a portfolio and take advantage of whatever deductions there might be. And you didn't mention it, but I, I would imagine that we're talking about the uh, depreciation on those rentals. Yes. Yeah. So is that the strategy for someone who just simply cannot qualify for real estate professional status? It's just to build a portfolio as big as they possibly can and just use the given depreciation schedule to lower that? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can even still do cost segs. Like I, I just bought a, um, I bought 10 duplexes with my parents and, uh, and I'm, I'm passive, right? My dad is a real estate professional but I'm passive. So we're going to do a cost seg and my parents are going to benefit today. I will receive probably 200 or so, maybe $180,000 of losses that I will not be able to claim. But I also have a rental property in my portfolio that's got about $200,000 of gain built into it thanks to the recent run-up in real estate prices. So if I have 180K of losses coming from one portfolio or, or these 10 properties, then I can, I can liquidate this other property and not have to worry about a 1031 exchange, right? So you can still accelerate losses. Like I don't, I don't want people to come away from this thinking that they just have to straight line depreciation. Like you could still accelerate, you can still do the cost seg. It, it'll produce losses that are suspended uh, that you can use in the future, but it does give you flexibility. But yes, to answer your question, absolutely. I mean, the name of the game, it, at the end of the day, we want to build wealth through real estate, right? Like, like taxes should all, always be secondary. Um, if you can understand the tax game, you can, you can further optimize that wealth building, right? You can, you can make it happen faster. Uh, but a lot of people, when, when they listen to my real estate professional status talks, because in, in certain groups, like whenever I'm talking to uh, 
to like brand new people who have been in these like different guru groups or these different REIs that, that hype them up about real estate professional status. I know that my job is to bring everybody down. <laughs> so I will remind them how, how incredibly hard it is to qualify as a real estate professional. Then you look around the room and you see all these deflated looks, right? And they're all, they're all thinking like, man, I want to invest in real estate. and I want to use the tax losses, but this guy up here is telling me that I can't do that. So what the heck's the point of investing in real estate? But I just want to be clear that Hey, I can buy a hundred thousand dollar home that cash flows four thousand dollars, but I depreciate it thirty seven hundred dollars a year. So I'm I'm getting four thousand dollars of cash flow that hits my pocket, and I'm telling the IRS I only made three hundred dollars. So I'm paying tax on three hundred bucks. I'm paying thirty dollars in taxes on a bad day, you know. And so I'm paying thirty dollars in taxes on four thousand dollars in earnings. If you can ten x that. Now it's $40,000 of, of actual income that's hit my pocket and I'm paying $300 in taxes, right? And then if you can 10X it again, now it's $400,000 of cash flow that I'm paying $30,000 in taxes on. And the equivalent there is like earning a $700,000 W-2 wage, okay? If I can net 400K and basically not pay tax on it, it's as if I earned a $700,000 W-2 wage. And so that's the real... That, that's, that's what everybody should really be targeting is how do I net one, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in cash flow? But I don't tell the IRS that that's what I netted. I tell the IRS something significantly less, if not negative. Because if I can do that, then I will truly have uh, this, this wealth building down. I will accelerate my wealth building, I'll accelerate my freedom number, my financial independence number, uh, or, or getting there. And I'll just be freaking crushing it. And one of the reasons that I got into real estate, like, like way back 2015, 2016, I was like, should I niche in real estate? And I had a bunch of CPAs say, no, there's no money in real estate. And they were all lying because there is. But uh, they're like, there's no money. Like, don't. And there's all just a bunch of landlords. They're all cheap, yada, yada, yada. You guys are cheap, by the way, but that's, no, that's okay. CPAs are really cheap too. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to get in it was I wanted to see, does real estate genuinely provide a path to wealth building? And, uh, and I have confirmed that it 1000% does. Uh, but the other cool thing that I've seen is we have clients that net two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year, and they do not pay tax on that income. And that is really cool to see. So it's not like it's, you know, before actually seeing it, it's always like, eh, it's just somebody just telling me, you know, whatever. That's not, it's not, I'm not capable of it. There's no way I'm going to get there. But then you actually see it on these tax returns. And you actually see the results and then you talk to the client and they're just, you know, just some Joe Schmo driving a Toyota Corolla. They're nothing, nothing, nothing exciting. Nobody knows that they're netting 400 K a year and they're not paying tax on it. Um, and, and that's just through the incredible. depreciation. You're not factoring in cost segregation. Just through the depreciation. Yeah. 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 So, okay. We've, you've mentioned cost segregation multiple times here. I think it would be a mistake not to define what it is and who should use it and who should not even worry about it. So a cost segregation study is the act of, or it's, it's the science, I guess, of reallocating value away from 27 and a half year property and into a five, seven and 15 year schedule. So basically when I buy a rental property, I depreciate the building value. I can't depreciate land. So I got to figure out the land value. And then I just kind of set that aside but I depreciate the building value over 27 and a half years. Why 27 and a half? No idea. That's just what Congress says. So, it's, so 27 and a half years is how long I depreciate the building value. So $100,000 acquisition, maybe $90,000 is uh, improvements divided by 27 and a half should be like $3,300 a year. That's my annual depreciation that I get to claim every single year. Now a cost segregation study says, it's kind of like based on the premise of Hey, you have things inside of this property. Like, like the property is not just building. There's stuff inside of that building that will wear out a heck of a lot faster than 27 and a half years. Some will last five years. Some will last seven years. Some will last 15 years. Think of your carpet, your appliances, fixtures, things like that. All that, all those things are not going to last 27 and a half years. So a cost segregation study is the practice of taking value out of this 27 and a half year building bucket and allocating it to five, seven, and 15 years. And so if you think about it, if I take like, um, let's say I take $27,000 out of my 27 and a half year bucket. So it was providing $1,000 of annual depreciation expense. I take 27,000 
and I allocate it to five-year property instead. Well, now I'm going to get $5,000, roughly $5,400 of annual depreciation expense for five years. And if you're a tax person listening, I know that's not exactly how it works, but you know, we're just, we're just going high level here. So I'm, I'm taking 27K depreciated over five years, $5,000 a year. So instead of getting $1,000 a year for 27 and a half years, I get $5,000 a year for five years. And then I get zero after that because I've fully depreciated it. But for those first five years, I've increased my depreciation expense fivefold. And that just allows me to offset more cash flow. So in with the time value of money theory, you do want to do that because the cost of of everything rises and you want to take your tax benefits out of this property as quickly as you can so that you can reinvest those tax benefits today versus getting the tax benefits on year 27 and inflation has just completely eroded the value of those tax benefits, which is a separate conversation. But with this five-year property, so I can also 100% bonus depreciate five, seven, and 15-year property. So in this example, when I allocate value away from, when I allocate this $27,000 out of the 27 bucket, I put it in the five-year bucket, I could depreciate 5K a year for five years and get that increase in my annual depreciation, or I could 100% bonus depreciate it and take $27,000 today. So $27,000 of expenses now, today. And that is extremely powerful when we're talking about that time value of money theory. And that's what a lot of people are doing right now they're taking that full value today. 100% bonus depreciation will phase out starting next year. So next year, it's going to be 80% in 2023. Then it'll be 60% in 24, 40% 25, 20% in 26, and zero in 27. I expect that there'll be some sort of act in Congress to delay the sunsetting or, um, or, or expand it or something like that. But right now it's 100%. So you, you get that cost tech done. You can generally immediately write off 20% or so of the purchase price uh, in the first year of ownership. So when you take bonus depreciation or you do a cost segregation, if you can't use it all, can you carry it forward, whatever you don't use? Yes. Yes, you can. So you never lose it. So there's no loss or downside to doing a cost segregation or doing bonus depreciation today. You have nothing to lose. You, you use what you can and you carry forward what you don't use. The only downside is going to be when I pay $3,000 for a cost segregation study and I create like, let's talk about a real example, right? On these 10 duplexes. The downside for me, Brandon Hall, is that this cost segregation study will cost $3,000. My, my half of that's 1500 bucks. So I'm going to pay $1,500 in fees to get $180,000 of losses that I cannot claim. So it's going to be $180,000 that's suspended. If my portfolio consistently produces losses and I'm never able to claim the 180K. And then if we later sell the, the 10 duplexes and I can claim the 180K then against the 10 duplexes, but it's like the gain would be smaller if I never took the 180K in the first place. So it just, it's a wash. That's when it's not beneficial because I was, I was never able to actually claim the 180K and the benefits associated with it and reinvest those benefits today. But I would say that it's not beneficial, maybe 5% of the time. So of all the studies, maybe five of them don't actually pan out to be beneficial. So for the most part, you're correct. Even if it's going to create large losses, you should really understand what your investment philosophy looks like. And you, know, you can use those losses to offset future income. And you can carry them forward indefinitely until you actually use them. There's no yes. expiry on that. Yes, absolutely. So if I wanted to do a cost segregation or a bonus depreciation, do I work with you as my CPA or do I have to hire a third party? Good question. We require our clients to go through third parties. Okay. Uh, and there's, there's several of them out there. We don't have like, you know, anybody in particular that we refer to. We want the separation of duties, if that makes sense. Like we, we want to be the tax firm. We want to advise you on it, but we want the actual cost seg folks to actually do it because they have a ton of data. That's the thing, like they've been doing it for decades. They have a ton of data as to what things should actually cost, both internally and then also through these publications that they subscribe to. And, uh, and we just think that that's a much more powerful audit protection tool than using us as your cost seg person. Very cool. Brandon, we're not even gonna touch on business loss rules and other stuff yeah. I had here. We've gone uh, long enough. So let us wrap this up. Share with my audience here how they can get a hold of you, your firm, whatever information you want to share. Please, you know, let us know. Yeah, two ways. So if, if you're interested in exploring a client relationship, 
Uh, you can check us out at therealestatecpa.com, www.therealestatecpa.com. We've got a whole lot of content on there. Our podcast is on there. You can check out too, but there's a big orange button that says get started and you can start filling out that form. Caveat that we are expensive. We are, you're going to be several thousands of dollars in every single year to work with us. And if that is too much, that's totally fine. My larger mission in life is to help every single landlord out there save money on taxes by working with their own CPA in a more sophisticated manner. So we created a group uh, called Tax Smart Real Estate Investors. You can find it on Facebook. I believe it's facebook.com slash groups slash tax smart investors. So go there, join the group. It's a free group. You can ask any question you want. And uh, myself, my team, and other people in the group who have gone through our courses and our education, it's actually surprising me. They're coming back and they're answering questions too, and they're doing it in a really good way. So come join that group because we've got a lot of really good questions uh, flowing through there. And we've got about 9,300 people in the group today. That's awesome. All right, good stuff. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes so people can click and link and find it and it'll be super easy. But I would like to have you back on here in the coming months to uh, continue this conversation and talk about some of the stuff that we didn't get to today. So it's been very helpful. Sure thing. Happy to. Thanks for having me on, Marco. I appreciate it. All right, Brandon. Have a great day and thanks again. You too. Well, that was literally a great episode. I know the stuff can be a little bit dry at times, but the thing is, it's important to understand what your options are and the ways that you can lower your taxes because as Brandon mentioned, you know, your biggest expense are the tax bills you pay to the federal government and the state. So learn how to reduce your taxes if you want to put more money in your pocket. It's really that simple and that is the bottom line. All right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to wrap it up here for today. We went a little bit long. I think we went about 52 minutes. Download your free guide on our website, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It is available to you at both of our websites at noradarealestate.com and passiverealestateinvesting.com. And if you want to speak to my team about real estate investing and building a portfolio, you know, sign up for your free strategy session. It is no cost, no obligation. My team is here to help you and answer your questions. Speaking of questions, if you have questions for me, I am going to be doing more Ask Marco episodes and you can just submit those to me from the PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com website. Just click on Ask Marco. That is it for today. Remember to subscribe, it takes you two seconds. Just click on the subscribe button on your computer or smartphone. Help us spread the word, visit us on iTunes, leave us that rating and review. We greatly appreciate it. And that is it for today. Thank you for listening. We will see you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.